0: Really, really grateful for the leadership of our church, um, as well as Pastor Denise, Donald, our staff um, that's made this space available to me for uh, over the last couple years. And, and I can honestly say, though God has truly sustained me and uh, our church during this season, um, I definitely feel it in my bones the lack of that space. Um, And I'm excited uh, for just the intentionality during that time. I'll be meeting with a therapist, um, some some mentors, some leaders that really speak into my life and been queuing up and getting ready to really dive into that time to address things in my soul, um, address, you know, just physical health as well. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading some books and studying scripture without the rhythm of having to preach. And so... Uh, but I welcome your prayers uh, during this time. Uh, it's going to be special, but I definitely would love your prayers to undergird. Um, going from that note of gratitude, um, I wanted to actually invite us to a time of silence and lament. It's something that, to be perfectly honest, um, I wasn't ready to engage in last weekend, um, It was still very, very raw. Um, If you're aware, last weekend, there was some tragic events that took place in our city. Uh, There was an Asian-American woman um, that was thrown into the tracks, Times Square. Um, And it it was just heart-wrenching. In addition, there were two police officers that were killed in Harlem, young men uh, who've left families and and if you've been journeying with our church uh... especially twenty twenty we we lamented uh... and protested and prayed in response to reform that needed to happen with the police especially with black and brown lives um, But we also lament and mourn for police officers that are killed in the line of duty that are serving our city and and we, we, we honor the image of God in them and we mourn the loss. We grieve with their families. Um, and as much as we cried out for reform, we were never of the ilk that had decried all police and said, all police are bad. No, they, they, are, they serve our communities. We vitally need them. Um, and so I want to just invite us to a time of just uh, lament. And then I'll close us in prayer and we'll go into our message. Jesus, we come to you, and Lord, I confess it's it still feels very raw. Um, at the same token, Lord, I, I'm my concern for myself and for our community is that we would become uh, numb or or desensitized, Lord, to the tragedy of moments like this, and that we would not engage in prayer and action, Lord, we lift up the, the families of the police officers and the community in, in Harlem and in, in Washington Heights where they lived uh, and their families were, and they're grieving right now at the loss of these young men. Father, we lift up the family of our dear sister who was, whose life uh, ended brutally, Lord God, in Times Square and Lord we lift up the Asian American community our brothers and sisters Lord who have continued to have to lament and grieve and Lord in particular for our sisters in that community the, the legitimate fear and concern when they go out in public Lord this is not how you intended things to be and we ask for your intervention we ask for your shalom your peace Lord, for justice to, Lord, roll through like mighty waters through our city. God, we need you. We need you. Lord, and Lord, would you direct us as a church how we might be able to bless and support and love the families that are grieving and that have experienced loss during this time. Lord, we cry out to you. May your kingdom come in our city. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for engaging. um, uh, But God forbid we let our hearts grow cold and desensitized. Um, The pain of that will be far greater. As Pastor Denise shared, uh, this is... um, kind of a bittersweet Sunday. Um, In full disclosure, during these prayer and study months, God meets me powerfully. I really engage in scripture. Uh, I come back really full, but Sundays are awkward for me during that time because I miss you guys. I miss our church. I love our church. I've said it many times and I still mean it. If uh, if our church desired, the, the decided to fire me, um, I'd show up the next Sunday as a congregant, you know, because I love y'all. And so I'm not here just because I'm the pastor. Um, and it, it's bittersweet as well because I have thoroughly enjoyed how God has met us during this sermon series, inter- Intentional Relationship. And to, today as we close this series... I I want to draw our attention to a critical spiritual discipline, one that perhaps seems so super obvious or, or maybe you've not thought of or realized that it actually is a spiritual discipline. It is something that scripture teaches is vital and needs to be part of our intentional relationship. And that's the whole focus of this series, this idea that if we are not intentional in our relationship with God to support it and undergird it with these disciplines and rhythms, then we'll find ourselves believing we have a closer relationship with God than we actually do. And we won't have the undergirding, the scaffolding, the structure for long-term intimacy with Jesus. And so I hope and pray you've been hearing this invitation from God as we've been traveling and navigating through all these disciplines in scripture, and that you are seeking ways to incorporate them and to internalize them and make them part of your rhythms, whether it's silence and solitude whether it's prayer, um, it, what, what all these various rhythms. I hope also you uh, availed yourself of the recommendation of purchasing Richard Foster's book, Spiritual Disciplines. And again, just diving in deeper in that, gathering a few friends and going uh, intentionally, say, let's apply these disciplines. Let's read them. Let's apply them. Let's make these things a part of our life. And today, toward that end, we will focus our time today talking about the Spiritual Discipline Of corporate worship. The spiritual discipline of corporate worship. Let's go to Scripture, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people and to gather around your word. Our prayer is that you'd speak to us Glorify yourself. Meet us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him to each and every one of us. May we hear your voice, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you're not familiar with the letter to the Hebrews, I would encourage you to make it a goal of Bible study, to familiarize yourself with this incredible letter in the New Testament. It is so rich. Uh, It's probably one of my favorite books in the New Testament next to the book of Romans. It is absolutely rich with so much truth and grounding. And it's an interesting thing, actually. It continues to be um, uh, uh, an issue of debate who the author was. It's one of the books in the Bible that are, that mystery hangs over it. Some say it must be Paul. Some have argued that uh, it could have been another leader in the church, but there isn't anything like conclusive, conclusive where people can walk away from and say it's definitely this author that God used to pen this book. Um, and that's interesting on so many other levels that I wish we had time to get into. But the, the date range of when this book was written was anywhere between A.D. 50 to 90, even though there is consensus that it was likely written before A.D. 70 because during A.D. 70, uh, during that period of time, there was the sacking of Jerusalem. The Roman armies came and actually decimated and destroyed the sacred temple, and so there is no alluding to that in this letter whatsoever. Um, and, and so some, some scholars argue that it probably happened before A.D. 70. The, the cause of this letter is quite interesting. This letter was written to Jewish believers in Jesus. People who grew up Jewish in their faith and in their custom who were waiting the Messiah. And then they came to a place of professing faith in Jesus as the Messiah And now they were part of the Christian community, yet the occasion of this letter was to address the fact that these believing Jews in Jesus had actually fallen away. They'd come to a place where they were no longer professing faith in Jesus, and they were disconnecting from the body of believers that profess faith. Jesus. And if you read the book of Hebrews leading up to the 10th chapter where we're at right now, it's a continuous stream of amazing, robust theological teaching that basically systematically argues and kind of dismantles the idea that it's possible to have spirituality apart from Jesus. Essentially, going up to chapter 10, it it talks about the different patriarchs in the Old Testament, the different prophets. It even talks about angelic beings. And, And it keeps making the argument that Jesus was greater than all of these beings and prophets. And it talks about that God in these days now has chosen to speak solely through his son. That's a key moment in the book of Hebrews so as to send the message that to only hear from God through the prophets is incomplete. To only hear from God th- through the Old Testament is incomplete because if you want to hear the clear sounding voice, the current way that God speaks to us, it's through Jesus. And so that's what's happening all the way up to this moment. But it's, it's important to be clear that when this letter was being written to these Jewish believers that had disconnected from the church... It's the, the situation was not that they had just like missed a couple of Sundays where it's just like, oh, where's brother so-and-so? Oh, he's in the Hamptons this weekend. That's where he's at. You know, but he's coming back next week and, oh, his kids had soccer. And so there was a conflict, but they're, they're coming or, or sister so-and-so, she had a work trip and no, they had not just been gone for a couple of Sundays. Actually, the situation was they entered into a state of being that's known as apostasy, apostasy apostasy means that they had come to a place where they were not just disconnecting from physically worshiping together with the church. They had come to a place of full divorce in their hearts where they were saying, this Jesus that we just professed to be the Messiah, the Savior, we no longer believe that. That may not be like, a shocker to us, like, oh, people change their mind all the time. People walk away from things. You have to understand, for many of these folks, they were alive during the crucifixion. They, were, they, they knew people that were physically there. They were not so far removed as we are, and they were coming to a place where they were saying, this thing that happened that shook up our world... And is arguably the, 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 the most radical thing we've ever seen in our lifetime, the promised Messiah, we say no to that. After having said yes, and you gotta also understand for someone to profess faith in Jesus from a different religious background, even Judaism, it typically meant that your family cut you off. You, you were disconnected, you were excluded from the inheritance, you were considered dead. On many occasions there's there's some of my friends that have professed faith in Jesus that came from different religious backgrounds some families go to the extreme of holding a funeral service to commemorate the fact that that family member to us is dead they they don't exist simply because they profess their faith in Jesus after having this kind of radical conversion they are no longer part of the community And in fact, if you were to read further in chapter 10, verses 35 to 39, it would become clear that one of the reasons that was causing this apostasy is that these believers were experiencing intense suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were going through trials because of their faith. And as a result of that, they had experienced this complete reversal. Though their situation is very different than ours, I think there's a kernel of truth, a thread that extends from them to us in that if we examine our journey, faith in Jesus is most tested and revealed, the depth of it, during seasons and times of suffering, of trial, of difficulty, of disappointment. There's nothing like a bad report from the doctor to check your faith in Jesus. There's nothing like conflict in one's marriage to check your faith in Jesus. There's nothing like grieving over the loss of a loved one or experiencing a disappointment to check your faith in Jesus. Especially if we find ourselves falsely believing that our faith in Jesus should be a ticket to greater comfort. If you and I have been sold that bill of goods, I apologize to you on behalf of whoever lied to you. Because they lied to me too at a certain point. There was a time where I was misled and thought that faith in Jesus would lead to greater comfort, that it would be the security blanket, and that as a result of my faith in Jesus, I would never be plunged into despair and difficulty and trial. Oh, was I lied to. Were we lied to? And perhaps some of these folks were misled and lied to and thought. But then when the rubber meets the road and you encounter difficulty, The the firmness of your faith or the looseness of it gets exposed. And so they were going through this season of doubt, of extreme doubt, of disconnecting completely. And they were saying that Jesus, who they once professed as Messiah, as Lord, was no longer Lord to them and arguably to anybody. His death was not necessary. It was not needed. And what's interesting about a moment like that is that to reject Jesus as Messiah does not leave one in a state where you no longer need a Messiah. You actually just replace that Messiah with something else. Can I tell you whether a person is religious or not, we're all waiting a messiah. We're all putting our hope in a savior. For some people, our savior is a relationship. If we're single, we're saying, man, when I get married, that's gonna save me. If we don't have children, we say when we have children, that's gonna save me. If I'm like a, a junior executive, when I become a senior executive, that's gonna save me. It, we're, we're looking for things to save us As they were abandoning Jesus, the Messiah, they were replacing it with something else. But the tragedy that Hebrews is addressing is the fact that they have abandoned this faith that once was transforming them and making them whole, and now they have completely disconnected from it. But let's go to chapter 10, how chapter 10 speaks to this issue, because when we look at chapter 10 it says some amazing things verse 19 therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus here the author of hebrews is alluding to something that for jewish believers this would make this would trigger a good memory this would this would connect them with something deep when it says the most holy place it's referring to the temple that at one point had a sacred space that only the high priest could enter into and and it could only enter in once a year and they they could only enter in after they sacrifice a spotless innocent blemish-free lamb these these things at that point of time may have felt very ritualistic and not clearly understood, but we know as we look forward and then look backward, they were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would accomplish, that he would eventually be the true, spotless, blemish free lamb that would be sacrificed in order to make a way into the presence of a holy God. And here the author of Hebrews is making that connection that Jesus was that sacrifice. And it says that he has made a new and living way open for us through the curtain. There was actually a very intricately woven, incredibly thick curtain that existed between the holy place and the most sacred place. That you, that you had to go through this curtain. And what scripture tells us, read the New Testament, it's a fascinating moment. When Jesus was crucified and resurrected, it says that curtain was torn in half. Where th- This could not physically be done easily, but it, but it says that it happened with no one there. It was God signaling to the world that what used to separate everyone from my presence, my son has now dismantled it. And now you have free access through what Jesus has done. Look at what Hebrews says. It says we have a great priest over the house of God and through what he's done, through the curtain that's been split open, which was his broken body. When his body was broken, essentially the curtain that separated us from the presence of God was torn apart. Now you and I could enter boldly to the presence of God because what Jesus has done. Because this is all we've ever known. I don't think we realize and grasp the amazing reality that this is that at one point what we could easily take for granted that at any given moment you and I could enter into the presence of God with no reservation, with confidence, with boldness, that that was not always the case. That what Jesus did inaugurated this new reality that we fully enjoy. So much so it says let's draw near to God, verse 22, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. He's talking about the power of the sacrifice of Jesus to cleanse our conscience, to free us from guilt, that you and I could enter into the presence of our holy God without fear, without worry of impending judgment, without the idea that he might reject us, Because we saw and believe and put our faith in the sacrifice of his son. He goes from making this point, pointing us to this truth to verse 24. Where he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So after spending some time talking about what Jesus alone can do for us, that it's only through him that we have access to the presence of the Father, it's only through him that we can be free from guilt and shame, he then points to what community alone can do for us, which is it's only in community that we experience what Verse 24 and 25 says that we can be spurred on toward love and good deeds. That what happens in community, in Christian community, the reason why God has instituted this community called the church and why he invites people who follow him to be part of this community is because It's in the context of community that we experience the encouragement toward love and good deeds. That it's in fellowship with other believers that we are pushed toward living into our true new identity as followers of Jesus. And no longer living just unto ourselves. Encouragement comes from community. Can you say that with me? Encouragement comes from community. If today you're feeling discouraged, chances are you probably are experiencing some disconnection from community. In that the lack of encouragement indicates that we are either not encouraging others in community or not positioning ourselves to receive encouragement from community. But in these verses where he's telling us to consider how we could spur one another on toward love and good deeds and that in in community we encourage one another, notice what he says. He says, don't give up, not giving up meeting together, verse 25 as some are in the habit of doing. Interesting wording. It says some are in the habit of giving up being in community. I want to talk for a few minutes on the habit of gathering, the opposite of what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. He's saying some have the habit of disconnecting from community But I want to talk about the habit of gathering under the context of the spiritual discipline of worship. I love this quote from Richard Foster. He says, Worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. Worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. If you've ever wondered why we gather as a church, why even on a day like today, where all the reasons in the world stockpile and say, maybe we should cancel. Maybe we should not gather. Maybe we shouldn't put our best effort. The, the, the driving motivation in coming together as a community, in person, virtually, why this is a priority for us is because we are responding to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. The basis of us being a community and why we have the habit of gathering is because we are responding to God's love that's overflowing in his heart to us. And we are positioning ourselves to respond to that love, to receive that love, to be shaped by that love, to be transformed by that love, to be renewed by it. In fact, Mark chapter 12, verse 30, if you're not familiar with this verse, Jesus summarizes the entire law, the entire scriptures. And and he talks about the greatest commandment being this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. How much of our heart are we supposed to love, love the Lord with? You can respond back, this Q&A at this moment. Can I, can, I, can I hear that again? No, no, you misread that because Jesus says, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, right? Isn't that what we just read? No, let's read it again. Maybe grace was correct. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, now how much soul should we love the Lord with? How much of our soul. All your soul. Grace did very well in school, by the way. No one was stopping her from getting to the head of the class. Just bodies in front of her. I'm just climbing to the top. How much of our mind are we supposed to worship and love the Lord our God with? All of our mind. All of our strength. Why we gather. We gather in order to respond to God's love as a collective people... But the reason why we gather is because apart from gathering with one another, the threat that exists over our lives is that we will likely love the Lord with some of our heart, some of our strength, some of our mind. And we actually don't become aware of it until we're in community. There's this pastor that I intentionally hang out with him a couple times a year. And he doesn't know why. Because uh, it's just kind of awkward to say it. But the reason I hang out with him is because I've noticed every time I hang out with him, after I leave, I want to devour scripture. He has such a hunger for God, and it's not like pretentious or, we're just talking like over coffee and stuff. And, and, and I just, he, scripture exudes from him. And so this is literally what happens to me as I go into that, like, lunch or coffee. I read the scriptures a lot. And so typically I'll go in there assuming I'm a, a bit better than I actually am. Like, oh, I'm full of the word. I can quote scripture. I study it. And then I sit with him and I realize, oh, my hunger for God's word is a pittance. How, do I th- how, how could I have come to think that this was stronger than it actually is? It's not until I'm in community that I realize that. It's when we're together that we actually get a chance to refine our love for God. You know, I notice women do this very naturally. And you're going to laugh at this example. This was this was interesting for me. I was around uh, a group of young 20-something girls. Let me, oh, that's wrong. Ladies. Ladies. They're not girls at that age. I'm an old man. And so... And these were uh, people that worked for different Christian organizations and I was around them at this event. And I mean, I've been married for a long time, so the, how people date now is completely bizarre to me. Like I pray for young single people these days because wow, these are tricky waters to navigate. And they brought me back to my younger years because one thing has remained consistent, I found. Even though technology has changed how people date, Women do this way more better than men. Here's what was happening. A guy who was interested in one of these young ladies had sent them a message through one of these apps. And the women, what they did, they formed a little community amongst themselves. <laughs> and they began to process what the best response was. It was fascinating to me. I felt like a sociologist. Like, I was like, wow what we have here in the Serengeti. Like it was, in, it was interesting to see, but what they, what they inherently kind of intuitively touched on was in order to communicate well, we need others. So they didn't just fire off a message. They were like, Help me think about this. Help me. How can I say something that's, that's balanced, that's, that says I'm interested but not too interested, that's, that's curious, that, that fine line, which God bless women that they have to navigate this stuff with men because we, we make it interesting for you, to say the least. But what I walked away from that moment was like, oh, wow. It kind of mirrors what community does for us in our love for God. That when we're trying to respond to the love of God, the best thing we could do is to have people around us that can help us check our response to God. Help us think through what it looks like to respond to him so that we could have a sense of, are we fully bringing our hearts to him? Or are we bringing some of our strength, some of our love, some of our soul? You see, but... Even though the book of Hebrews is addressing this bigger idea of apostasy, of people actually uh, completely turning their hearts from the faith and saying Jesus was unnecessary, his sacrifice was unneeded, at this moment in Hebrews 10, arguably, when he says, some have the habit of not gathering, he's not talking about people that have turned away fully. Because when you turned away, it's no longer like, something that you're periodically doing, like disconnecting. No, he's talking about people that kind of are in and out of community, that disconnect for some time. And so for for those folks that that the author is talking to, I think we probably have the greatest resonance with that folk because their issue was not apostasy, their issue was apathy. They were disconnecting from community Not because they had said Jesus is not the Messiah. They were disconnecting from community because they let their hearts grow cold. To the value, to the beauty, to the necessity of community. And to them, the author is trying to kind of recharge their hearts trying to apply the paddles to their hearts and and revive their hearts with respect to the necessity of community. To be clear, gathering with the church doesn't save us from our sin, and it doesn't make God love you more. So if you fall into that category at times of the apathy, of the disconnect, of of not intentionally leaning in as much, the good news is God's love was never hinged on your church attendance. God's love for you and I was never dependent on how perfectly we do this. He assumes we're going to do it imperfectly. His love assumes it. It absorbs it. It factors that in. But to us who maybe find ourselves in a state of apathy at times, of gathering in community and have lost the vision of it, to us, these verses remind us that in order to love God more, to love God fully, to love God deeply, we are in need of being in community. It's impossible for that to happen apart from community. You see, when we are clear, crystal clear on who Jesus is, and our ability to serve him on our own, then gathering with other believers becomes a non-negotiable. When we're crystal clear on who Jesus is and the necessity of community in order to love him fully, to respond to his love, then being in community no longer is a debate. We know it's a necessity. We know it's a priority. We know we have to cause life to conform around it. And this text is calling us to not give up on gathering together. To not fall into that habit. And here's why I would argue and encourage us to not give up. From an example from history that's really been encouraging me lately and stirring me about the power Sometimes the often unseen, silent, imperceptible power that's at work when we persist to continue to gather. What could happen from a people's lives who are disciplined to gather in the name of Jesus and to spur one one another on toward love and good works. I think one of the best historical examples was a group in England called the Clapham sect. If you're familiar with the the historical figure, William Wilberforce, he was part of revolutionizing our world. And not only, the greater miracle was not only that he was a part of banning the slave trade in the UK and across the United Kingdom, and eventually that had ripple effects throughout all the world, but probably the biggest amazing contribution that he and his comrades made was that they abolished the idea of the acceptability of slavery. Slavery had been a part of the world for thousands of years, just a common practice, unquestioned. And they were part of changing the narrative around slavery to its core. Do you want to know how long that group met? This astounded me. They met regularly for worship, for prayer, for discussion, for reflection, for action. They met from 1780s to 1840s. Consistently, they were meeting in various ways for the span of 60 years. For 60 years, a group of people was meeting to spur one another for good works. Challenging one another to live fully for the glory of Christ looking at our world and the brokenness and saying, this is not how it was intended to be. How can we be a part of changing this in the name of Jesus? And we could celebrate the big historical transformation, but we would be remiss to not point to the engine that made that possible, the boiler room of it. It was the consistent meeting together. Can I tell you the discipline of gathering together doesn't always feel great. It doesn't always feel immediately rewarding. There will always be contending, competing interests and things that legitimately say, uh, you know, bow out this time or take a break this season. There will be challenges in connecting with others and just the difficulty of loving each other and building relationship. How many remember group projects in school? It, it, the first moments of that group project for me were always awful because it was a slowing down of what you could do as an individual. And now we had to assess people's strengths and delegation and who was going to get something done. And the whole time just like, I could have gotten this done by myself way quicker with less hassle. There, there's, there's a price to be paid, if we're honest, when we come together together. We sacrifice something individually, but we do so with joy and consistency when we are captured by the greater vision of what's possible by gathering together in the name of Jesus. We are committing to the continuous, slow, and inevitable transformation of our hearts as well as the possibility of transformation in our world. The two don't happen apart from gathering. As we stand, as the worship team comes forward, I want to encourage every single one of us to lean on God in order that we might have His perspective on the necessity of gathering. The spiritual discipline of it. What's possible through it why we need it for our own love for God, and why it's crucial in order to see our world transformed. As we worship in these next few moments, the prayer team is available to my left, to your right. If anything that you are carrying in your soul that you would like prayer for, they would love to pray with you. During these next few moments, you could slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. If anything, the message is stirred for you, anything you're going, we would love to pray with you. Could I invite us to raise our hands in worship in a response of surrender to receive. Jesus, as we respond to your love, may we choose and keep choosing to respond to your love, not just as individuals, but as a community, as a people. And may you meet us there. In Jesus' name, let's respond to God. The key.